Welcome. Glad you're here this morning. I know, again, maybe if you're a guest, it's like, what in the world is happening at this church? That's a fair question. I hear you. All right. And so again, we're going to be doing this the rest of February into the first week of March. And I want to talk a little bit about why. All right. Why do we go about doing these things? Uh, Why are we choosing to show a preview and have popcorn and all the things? And so uh, the famous author, uh, theologian, apologist, guy by the name of C.S. Lewis, uh, wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. And uh, he wrote an essay uh, at one point, and in this essay, he talked about the power of story. In this essay, he said, story has the power to sneak past the watchful dragons. And what does he mean by that? Essentially, what he means is that all of us, we have watchful dragons that guard our hearts, our ideologies, our beliefs, the way in which we view the world. These watchful dragons over our souls that say, no, 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 that's not right, that's incorrect, that's not right, we need to stay on the truth, stay focused on what is true, and ultimately what is true is what Jesus says is true in the Word of God. The Word of God is the ultimate source of truth, and yet what can happen is because stories are so powerful, stories and the messages that they have, as C.S. Lewis would say, can sneak past the dragons that guard our ideologies and our beliefs, find their ways into our hearts, and shift the way in which we view and think about the world. The reality is the better the story is, the more powerful and the more sneaky, in a sense, those ideologies can be. We can watch a a movie, and if it's really good, you're probably going to laugh and you're probably going to cry. I cried like three times in Creed 3. I'm a crier. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, who, who cries during a boxing movie? Uh, everybody, right? Have you seen Rocky? I mean, are you kidding? Let's go. And so all that to say, as we're watching these stories, they're so good. They just find their way into our hearts and we're like, without even realizing it, what can happen is we begin to adopt the message that the movie teaches. And so that being said, I want to back up a little bit. What, what is the message that Creed 3 teaches? What is Creed 3 really about Well, it, it's born out of the Rocky franchise, the Rocky series, uh, Creed, uh, known as Adonis or Donnie, oftentimes in the movie. He is the son of the famous Apollo Creed. If you're familiar with the Rocky uh, world, Apollo Creed is the one who gave Rocky a shot uh, for a title in Rocky I. Uh, Apollo uh, eventually dies, um, and what happens is, so Creed somehow comes along in there. We don't know about Adonis, excuse me. And so Adonis grows up, he becomes a champion fighter, and it begins this new series, uh, if you will, the Creed series. Now what happens in this movie, we're in the third installment, and at this point in the uh, Creed world, uh, Adonis has become a heavyweight world champion, he is very successful, he has then since retired, he's walked away from fighting, he is spending time with his wife, who you saw in the preview, his daughter, and he's managing and running this gym that trains up future uh, fighters and boxers, right? And so then all of a sudden this guy shows up, Guy Damien, the dude lean, leaning on the car. And so there is a deep history between Adonis and Damien. Uh, when they were kids, Damien was like an older brother to Adonis, 
And Damien was a rising champion fighter in his own regard. And one night, he wins a fight. He and Donnie or Adonis, they go to a convenience store, and Adonis is walking around the corner on the sidewalk in this convenience store, and out of the convenience store walks a man who had physically beaten and abused Adonis. And Adonis snaps in that moment, and he attacks that man. And as he attacks that man, others jump on Adonis, and they start hitting him. And Damien walks around the corner, and he pulls a gun. And when he does that, the police show up. Adonis flees the scene. Creed flees the, the scene of, of the event. And Damien, who has apparently had some priors, uh, he gets 18 years uh, prison sentence. And the life that he thought he was going to live, which was the life of a heavyweight you know, boxing champion, Adonis ends up living that life instead. And so then when Damien finally gets out of prison after 18 years, he goes to Adonis and he says, hey, I can still be a fighter. Donnie says, you're nuts, you're too old, but he gives him a chance and he does become this champion level fighter. But there's animosity between the two. You see, Damien resents Adonis for living the life that he thought he should have lived. And Adonis, he's actually wrecked with the guilt of fleeing the scene, and we're told Adonis never wrote, he never called, he never checked in on his friend who was like a brother to him in Damien. And so suddenly then, what is this message? What's the central theme of this movie? And there are, of course, many different themes, but the primary driving sort of point of this movie, the, the preview actually said it, there's no enemy like the past, and really the central sort of point of this story is Adonis is fighting with guilt. That that's, the, that's the tension, that's the struggle with here. He, he's fighting with the guilt, again, of fleeing the, the scene. He, he's fighting with the guilt of, of, of not writing, not reaching out. He's absolute fighting with guilt. And so then, to the point of C.S. Lewis, this film will tell us something about how it is we should deal with guilt. It will tell a story that teaches us and has the power to sneak past the watchful dragons that guard our ideologies and our beliefs. And so what is the story this movie is telling that has the potential to sneak past those watchful dragons? Well, there's three pivotal conversations that really teach us what the message of this movie really is. The first conversation, the first conversation, I'll go ahead and read all three conversations and then we'll get to the, the two points that I'm going to have for us. Adonis, speaking to his mother who is on her deathbed, says, her mother, his mother says this, so mad, going to knock everybody out one by one just like your father, Apollo. That's why he fought so hard, but you don't have to do that. You can find another way, another way. And so what she's saying here, there's another way to deal with your guilt. There's another way to deal with your pain, your hurt, your issues in the past. And so then the question is, well, what is that other way? And again, this is where the movie teaches us. It has a message for us, and there's two more conversations that happen. One is soon after that moment in the film between Adonis and his wife, and his wife says this, you have to try to forgive yourself so that you can begin to believe that you deserve the life that you have earned, because you do. Don't let him destroy everything you have built. That's sort of key conversation number one. Key conversation number two from the trainer, and we saw it in the preview, he says, let go of whatever was and walk into what is. So this movie gives us two pieces of advice, how we fight another way, not just beating people up, which is good. We shouldn't just beat people up, but how do we fight the guilt that we have in our past? Number one, the movie would say, ignore the past. 
And the reason I'm getting that is from the quote from Adonis' trainer, let go of whatever was, walk into what is. And so the question is, well, does that work? Can I ignore my past failures? Can I ignore my past shame? Can I ignore the sins that I have committed against others and ultimately against God? And will I find peace and satisfaction in my soul if I just ignore it? The answer to that is no. As a kid, I remember a couple of instances driving down the road and the car would begin making an odd noise, probably in hindsight a rotor issue. And my dad, somewhat joking, mostly serious, would say, you want to know how to fix that, son? And he would turn the radio up. And we didn't hear the sound anymore. But here's the thing, that doesn't fix the problem, it just makes it worse, and then you have to really deal with something eventually down the road, pun intended, right? And so you see, it didn't land at all. Anyway, <laughs> so ignoring, ignoring our guilt, what will happen to us is the issue will become worse and worse. It will it will increase, and what will happen is, essentially, we come to this breaking point where we have to shut down. If we're going to ignore our past, ignore our issues, and I'm realizing I'm speaking to my own heart so much this morning, what happens is we become emotionally cut off, emotionally calloused, emotionally, I'm fine. But in reality, we're not. And underneath, things are boiling and brewing until we we just explode. What can also happen is if we just say forget about it is we become a hard and calloused person toward others. We don't extend apologies when we hurt people. We just move on because we don't want to deal with the pain of emotions. It's hard. But that's only going to make things worse. The second piece of advice is this. Forgive yourself. And I'm getting this from the quote from Adonis's wife. You have to Got to try to forgive yourself so that you can begin to believe that you deserve the life that you have learned. If that is not a line for our age, I don't know what is. So does this work? Can we just forgive ourselves? Well, think about it for a moment. If I sin against you and then um, I just say, so we're good, right? And then I walk away, I'm like, ah, I've forgiven myself for the wrong that I've committed uh, to that person. Have I actually reconciled? No. You can only reconcile with someone, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain this in a bit uh, because it's more complicated than I'm about to say, but reconciliation is a two-way street. Right, if you sin against someone, they, they have the power. Like the, the wrongdoer does not have power to forgive the wrong done. The, the one who has been wronged, they have the power to forgive the one who has done wrong to them. Right? But in our day and age, and again, to the advice of the movie, it's just forgive yourself, but the reality is that doesn't actually make any logical sense. It just actually creates the same problem that point one did, where you begin to say, I don't care what other people think, I don't care what I've done to other people, I'm just going to keep moving, and we end up steamrolling people and being not a kind person. And so then the question is, okay, well, what then? What is the solution to our guilt? So anybody in the room have guilt? Thank you. Okay, pretty good. Pretty honest. I, that's not good. But like, I appreciate <laughs> y'all are messed up. Me too. Here, here's what I appreciate. I think we as the church need to be a people who say, I'm struggling with this thing in my life. I have guilt. I have pain. I have shame. And a lot of us, we want to just forget it in the rearview mirror. We want to turn up the noise. We want to distract ourselves into oblivion and ignore the pain. 
But if we actually want to find healing and restoration and recovery for the things of our past, we can't just ignore it. We can't forgive ourselves. We need another way. And so what we're going to do in the rest of our time this morning is we're going to go to Psalm 51. If you have a Bible with you, Psalm 51. And uh, due to time, I'm not going to read all of it at one time. Uh, We're going to sort of work our way through it almost theme or point by point. Psalm 51, I would encourage you to spend time in it later today as well. Uh, later this week as well. It is such a rich and deep psalm, but this psalm, I believe, gives us a pattern and an example for how it is we deal with the guilt and the shame of our past, how it is we, we can navigate our sin. And so I want to give you a little bit of context and a little bit of setup here. When you open the psalms, what you'll see is there's almost like a preface, like a here's what's happening in the world when this psalm was written, or here's what's happening in the life of the author when this psalm was written. Here's the preface to Psalm 51. To the choir master, A psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And so if many of us, I understand, are are familiar with this story, and some of us may not be, many of us may not be, and that's okay. So I want to explain it so we all understand what's happening. David, who we talked about two weeks ago, this man of great faith, the man who the Bible says was chasing after God's own heart, a man after God's own heart, incredible stories of faith from David, and simultaneously horrific moments of failure. I mean, like, seriously, how could you do that failure? Talk about guilt. What happens here, excuse me, if you read into uh, 2 Samuel, what you see is, as as this one chapter opens up, and I think it's chapter 2, but I'm sorry, I forget it right now, forgive me. Um, So you open this up, and you can write me a letter later. Um, You open this up, and what happens? It says it was springtime, the time that kings go to war. That's what the text opens up with. It's the time that kings go to war. 2 Kings chapter 10, I think, maybe 11, that's it. And so um, the time the kings go to war, but what happens is David, he hasn't gone to war. Instead, David is, is hanging out at his palace. It's time where kings go to war, soldiers go to war, and Israel, to be clear, is at war at this point. But David is not with his men in war. And I think that just brings up an important point, that when we do not do the things we know we ought to do or should do, it often leads us to do the things that we know we should not do. And I would also say is that men in particular, I want to be careful, women of course as well, but when we are inundated with free time, things can creep in. And so David here in this moment, he has a lot of free time. It says he's walking around in the palace. He goes up to the roof and he looks down. Again, he should be at war, but he's not. He's isolated. He's by himself. He's got too much time on his hands. And he sees a woman bathing and he says, I would, I would like to, to be with that woman. And so he brings her to himself. Her name is Bathsheba. And he uh, lies with her. She becomes pregnant. And then what happens is she sends word to David, hey, I'm pregnant. David begins to freak out. Because he realizes he has sinned, he realizes he's messed up, and so he compounds things. He sends for Uriah. Uriah is David's good friend. Uriah is one of the 30 mighty men who guard David. Uriah is out on the battlefield where Uriah is supposed to be. David sends to him and he says, hey, why don't you go spend some time with your wife? He's trying to cover up his sin. Uriah is a faithful brother and he's like, no, I'm not going to do that. How could I enjoy the, the company of my wife when all those other men are out there fighting away? And you got to imagine David's like, you are so good of a guy. You know, like just, he's like, you're right. You know, I'm going to, you know. And so then he tries to get Uriah, he gets Uriah drunk, thinks maybe that will help him go and be with his wife so he can cover up this pregnancy. Uriah still does not Uh, go and be with his wife. And so then David, he says, Uriah's got to go. David sets Uriah up. He tells people, hey, send him to the most intense part of fighting. And when the battle is at its most, draw back. 
Uriah is, is killed and, and David orchestrated his death, which means David not only took this man's wife, impregnated her, he then had him murdered. This is David, a man that we say is just incredible, horribly flawed. And so Psalm 51, after that probably too long of setup, is David's response to when Nathan, the prophet of God, goes in to David and he says, hey, you have sinned. And David is then crushed by the weight of his sin. Psalm 51 is him processing the weight of his sin to God. And therefore, it is then a wonderful template for us. How do we deal with the guilt that's in here? I want to pray and ask the Lord for his help. This is a, just a, there's some really difficult things in here. Uh, and, and I've struggled with how to faithfully teach it. So I want to pray and ask the Lord, and then we'll get into things from there. Father, um, we need your help this morning. And as we navigate our guilt, I, I pray Jesus, that you would be glorified, that we would understand that you are the ultimate solution to our guilt, our pain, our regret, everything. And Father, I pray that you would give us practical steps to implement so that we can find freedom, so that we can, by your power, by your Holy Spirit, put to death what is sinful within us, so that we can live lives that glorify and honor you. We trust you, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. God help us, amen. Psalm 51 uh, it begins with this, and again, we're not going to read the whole thing, I apologize, just due to time. It says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. All right, have mercy on me, God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. A couple things I want to notice uh, that don't happen. David does not go to God and begin with, well, God, here's what happened. You see, uh, Michael, who was David's wife, we were sort of, you know, we, there was some difficulties there, and, it, you know, and I saw this woman, and I was like, wow, you know, she's beautiful. Nothing about what David says here justifies his actions. He doesn't go to God and say, well, you know, it was, uh, she's, yeah, what, what am I going to do, you know? No, none, none, nothing here justifies what he has done. David does, does also, nothing for, with David, does he go to God and say, you know what, God? I know I messed up, but I'm the man of faith. I, you know, sunk a stone into Goliath's skull. That was crazy. I honored Saul all those times as Saul hunted me down. I did all of this. God, I've been faithful. I've been true. I've been good. He does not go to God with all of that. He goes to God with, have mercy on me, God. Mercy is an extension of grace to the undeserving. What we need to understand, church, is that the mercy or the grace of God is an extension to us. We do not deserve it. We do not earn it. There is nothing when we go to God in our sin and say, well, I did, I'm, I, you know, I'm pretty good. No, 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 no. All of us are dead in our sins and transgressions without Christ. None of us have life on our own. None of us have done a thing to earn the favor of God, to earn the trust of God. None of us have done that. Christ has done it in our place. And what we do through faith is to say, forgive me through Christ what you've done, the punishment you've laid out for my sin upon Christ. You extend that to me. I do not deserve it, but you give it to me anyway. God's mercy or grace toward us is based upon God's character, not our righteousness. Again, going back to David, he doesn't begin with, God, remember I'm this guy? I'm the, sort of the guy. No, none of that. It's not based on your works. It's not based on how good you've been. It's not based on any of that. It is based solely on Christ and Christ alone. And your faith that Christ 
would die for your sins. And so we have to see that. Now, moving on into the text, we continue on. The second half of verse 1, it says this, Blot out my transgressions. Continuing on to verse 3, we're going to get back to verse 2. It says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, we read that again, continuing on. What do we do with our guilt? David says, blot out my transgressions. Right? Blot out my transgressions. He continues on in verse 16. It says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. And what do we do with our guilt? Here's what I think we need to see here. Finding freedom from guilt involves acknowledging the what and the who of our sin. Right? Finding freedom from our guilt. Again, he starts out with, blot out my transgression. He goes on all this, this thing. So it's for you to not delight in sacrifice. I would give it. He says, I have sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight. And yet, I think as we're reading that, we might think, well, it seems a little bit lacking. Right? Seems a little bit like we, we missed something because he says, against you, O Lord, have I sinned and you only. And we might hear that and say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, David. You actually sinned against Bathsheba. You sinned against Uriah. You sinned against the nation of Israel. You should have been out at war, but you weren't. You've sinned against a whole bunch of people. So why, David, do you say against you, O Lord, have I sinned and against you only? What do we do with that? Here's what I would, I think, helps us understand this. What we need to understand is that ultimately, all sin is against God because God has given the standard for righteousness. Who was it that said we should not lie? Who was it that said we should not commit adultery? Who was it that said we should not murder? God said all of those things. And so when we sin, we are ultimately rejecting the command of God, though oftentimes we are rejecting that command and someone else suffers as a result of our rebellion against the law of God. And so I think we have to hold that there for a moment and we have to rely on the full counsel of Scripture. Okay? The full counsel of Scripture. The Bible is true. It cannot contradict itself. It is true. And so in Matthew chapter 5, what Jesus says this, he says this in verse 23, and this is helpful. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. And so we have to hold this intention. Right? While David does not say, he, he, he does not specifically in this text say, I have, I have repented to Bathsheba, he doesn't say that, but we can assume he has. We also have to hold intention what Jesus tells us to do. And so if you have sinned very specifically against someone else, it's pretty cool. What you, need, what you need to do is you need to go to that person and you need to repent to them. Say, I have sinned against you, will you forgive me? And what you need to do is you need to go to God and say, God, I have sinned against you. Your commandments are what I rejected. You are who I have rejected ultimately. It's ultimately you. So what we need to do here is we need to bring our guilt to God. Right? We need to bring our guilt to God. So step one in your process, bring your guilt to God. I would also say in this, that there's some actually really good news that all sin is ultimately against God. 
as it relates to receiving freedom from our sin, freedom from the guilt of our sin. Think about this for a moment. If I had to receive forgiveness from you before I could be free from guilt, that would actually be a bit of a problem because what if you say no? Think about David's situation. David sinned against Uriah. Uriah's dead. How could David possibly receive freedom from the guilt in his soul if Uriah can't forgive him? Can't. And so what we have to understand is while we should go to our brothers or sisters or whomever it is we have sinned against and we should repent and we should pray that they would forgive us, the guilt in our souls isn't ultimately dependent upon their response. It's ultimately dependent upon the sacrifice of Christ in our place. Do you see that? Such a fine seemingly line here, but we have to understand that the forgiveness I have received for my sin is not based off of my good works, it's not based on anything. It's based on, on trusting that Jesus, again, as I've said numerous times, took the penalty for my sin. And so when we trust, like, don't do, Jesus, you have forgiven me. What happens is we receive forgiveness for the guilt that we have. And so we need to understand all sin is ultimately against God. And yes, we do need to repent to others. Now, continuing on, we get into uh, verse 2. We skipped this earlier, but I said we would uh, go um, back into it. So verse Two, it says this, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Wash me, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. Continues on, verse seven, it says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquities and cleanse me from my sin. Part of this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. We need to have a clear moment of repentance and bringing our guilt to God. And I think here again, while David does not detail, give us a detailed list to say, remember I did this, I did this, he knows that God knows. And I think it is helpful for us to remember that when we're repenting to God, when we're bringing our guilt to God, and we're saying, wash me from my iniquity, cleanse me from my iniquity, we need to have something specific in mind. It's a little bit like what happens if you go up to your spouse and you know they're mad at you and you say, hey, I'm sorry. And they're like, for what? And you're like, well, um, you know, I, I'm sorry. For what? It's not going to go well. You don't, you, you don't apologize to try and get, just appease the person, hoping that if you apologize to your spouse, they're going to articulate to you exactly what you've done so that you can go and then repent to them. No. I think we do that sometimes. Sorry. We do that with God. We go to God and we say, God, I'm sorry for how I sinned. How'd you sin? Well, you know. That's not actually true conviction. It's not a true understanding of how we have ignored and rejected the commandments of God. And so when we're going to God, as we're bringing our guilt to God, I think we need to be specific. And I think we need to do, there's like a twofold view here. We need to ask for forgiveness and renewal. This is a little bit interesting, okay? Again, I just want to go back into the text. Ask for forgiveness. I get that in verse two. It says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He's asking for forgiveness. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He's being very, very clear on these things. Right? And so we need to, again, go to God and say, cleanse me from my sin. Cleanse me from these things. And God is faithful to do it. 
Again, through faith in Christ, your sins are gone. You are a, a new person. You are free in Christ. And what David says here, I think it's so fascinating. He says, create me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David does not stop at forgiveness. He asks for renewal. Do you see that? He doesn't end with just forgive me, God. He says, no, renew me. Give me a new heart, a new mind, a new way of thinking about the world, a new way of seeing your goodness, a new way of seeing the world around me. Renew me. And this is a little bit, again, tricky. And I want to be very, very careful in how I say this. Because I think this has to do with, there's some of us in the room right now who we are struggling with ongoing and repeated sin. We have ongoing and repeated sin in our lives. And I think when we have ongoing and repeated sin in our lives, we begin to ask, like, well, am I forgiven of all people? Like, I, I keep doing these things. And we, I want to be very clear to say here, too, for those of us who have ongoing, repeated sin in our lives, and we hate it, and it drives us crazy, and we plead, God, help me with this. I want to point you to renewal. I want to remind you of what David says in Psalm uh, 51 verse 11, he says, he says this, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. David just committed adultery and murdered a man and yet he still has the Holy Spirit of God in him. What does that mean? David's still saved. And we read that and it's like, really? Whoa, whoa, whoa. How? No. If you have truly repented of your sin, placed your faith in Jesus, Jesus has you. You are secure in Christ. John 10 28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Here's what that means. If you are, and this is a razor's edge and I want to be so careful on how I say this and you have questions of what I'm talking about, email me, please. Like, I mean that one. Have a conversation. Let's, let's talk through this. If you are guilty and you feel it, I want to encourage you that you're still in Christ because you have conviction over your sin. You're still in Christ because you feel the burden of your sin. Like, God, I don't want to do this anymore. And what I would point you to is 2 Corinthians 5.17. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, We are now therefore new creations in Christ. The old is gone, the new is here. Right? So as we're new creations, that doesn't mean we never sin again. The reality is we do. 1 John, if I could point you there. Book of 1 John, I'll turn to it. It says, uh, I believe in chapter 2, verse 1. I don't have my bookmark in, so hopefully it's on the screens. I love it when that happens. It says, My little children, I am writing, the, writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The aim is, I don't want to sin. But when I do, as I do, the reality is the Holy you're not on a roller coaster of saved and not saved. That is such good news. You are saved. Jesus forgives you. Your past, present, and future sin, you are a forgiven person if you have truly placed your faith in Christ. And there's nothing that can stop that. Even adultery and murder. That pushes us. It's like, whoa, 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 are you sure? It's not about my works. And here's the razor's edge. Elsewhere in 1 John, chapter 3, beginning in verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. You that he appeared, uh, you that he appeared in order to take away sins, in him there is no sin. No one uh, who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning have either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. So there's a tension. What do we do with this tension? 
Here's my concern. If you have confessed Christ and you say, I'm a believer in Jesus, and you continually practice, promote, and enjoy things that you know rebel against Jesus, and that Jesus understood to be serious enough to die on the cross for, and yet you're like, it doesn't really matter. I watched this thing for the utilitarian purpose of it. What's the big deal? I'm concerned for your soul. Do you see the razor's edge I'm talking here? It is so fine and yet so important. You are secure in Christ. You're not on a roller coaster of saved and not saved. And yet, if you are walking in blatant, unrepented, repeated, God, I don't really care. This isn't a big deal. I'm going to do what I want to do. Those who truly have understood the grace of God, I don't believe continually promote, encourage, engage, and enjoy the things that Christ had to die to save you from. Do you see the difference? So what then do we do? If you are at a point in your life where you are struggling with a sin and it's just like an addiction and you just are like, God, I you're saved because it breaks your heart. And what I want to encourage you toward is renewal. Take drastic, extreme measures. Repent to God. Talk to other people. Say, I'm dealing with this. Help me. Get a brick of a phone. It, whatever you have to do, do it. It is worth it. It is worth it. And, again, if you're sinning and you're like, whatever, I'm concerned for your soul. Now, moving on from there, we have bring your guilt to God, ask for forgiveness and renewal, and there's more to this. What else does David have to say? As we, again, we navigate the guilt that we have in our lives, it says this, he says, uh, we're going to start in verse 12, restore to me a joy of your, of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. So what's step three, if you will, of, of moving beyond the guilt? Again, it's not just ignoring it. It's not self-forgiveness. Step three is is really understanding that God transforms us, right? God transforms us and gives us a platform from which to share his glory, right? God transforms our failings and he turns them into, hey, use this thing I've redeemed you from and saved you from and share it with other people. I think so often in Christian world, we, we allow shame and the guilt of our past sin to, to keep us silent, because we, we really don't understand that we're totally forgiven. And, and so we're like, well, if people knew that I, that I did that, like, man, they would probably wouldn't like me anymore. It's not the gospel. Like, it's not what the church should be. We need to be a people who radically repent, radically seek by the power of the Spirit to put to death what is sinful in us. And we need to be a people who, when God does that by his power, not ours, when God saves us, transforms us, renews us, frees us from the imprisonment of sin that is bound up in our lives, and then we're finally free, we no longer have the addiction, we no longer desire the same things, all of that. When God does that, we should not hide it, we should share it. Because only God can change you. Only God could change this jacked up individual talking to you right now. Only God could change my heart to change the desires, the twisted desires of my mind, the twisted desires in which I have seen and looked at people. Only God could take what is inside of me and make me into a new creation. And I don't want to shy away from that. 
God has saved me from so many things. He saved me from things that I don't know why I did. But he did because everything in this life is about his glory. And when he saves us and when we say, you know what, God saved me from 10 years of porn addiction and whatever else, only God gets that glory. I didn't do it. God saved me from it because it was decaying my soul. God saved me from both my, my now wife, Maddie, and I from saying, you know what, God, we're doing this thing. We don't care. Literally, I remember praying that to God. God, I know you say don't do this. I don't care. That is the most dangerous spiritual place you can ever be, and I was there. And yet God did not give me over to my debased mind, as he talks about in Romans chapter 1. No, instead he saved me and restored me. We need to share what God has done in our lives with people. And it's messed up and it's broken and it's messy, but what could God do through your story of salvation, your story of grace in your life? What could God do through you? How would that transform your family? Think about it. If we draw a line and we say, no, no God, no more. What could God do to reshape eternally your family tree? It's amazing. Three steps. How do we deal with the guilt? Bring your guilt to God. The reality is that Jesus forgives us of past, present, and future sin through faith in him, through understanding that he died for your sins. He will save you. You are no longer guilty before the God of the universe through Christ. Done. Number two, ask for forgiveness and renewal. Ask him to reshape us, change us into new people. Number three, share your story of forgiveness and renewal with others and see how God works through that for his glory and for your good. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, you're so good, and we trust you, Lord. Oh, we need you so much, God. Lord, those in the room this morning who are battling long-term addictive sin patterns, I want them to be encouraged that you, you're with them. I want them to fling themselves upon you and say, Jesus, thank you for forgiving me. Please renew me. I need you to renew me, Jesus. Change the way that I think. Change my heart. You promised, Jesus. Cling to the promises of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. I am am now, therefore, a new creation in Christ. The old is gone. The new is here. Be renewed. Holy Spirit, make it so. For those of us in the room who are dealing with, we're just walking, we know the, the commands of God, and yet we reject them and we say, you know what, it's not that big of a deal. I am concerned for your soul. And I'm willing to say that because I care more about your eternal salvation than you liking me. I'm concerned for your soul. So I want to encourage you, there is grace found at the cross of Christ. There is newness found at the cross of Christ for you to say, convict me, wreck me over my sin. Help me not stay there, but receive the renewal that you and you alone can give me. For some of us, maybe we need to spend time journaling, sharing, writing, speaking, whatever it is that God has saved you and rescued you from. God, thank you for this morning. Work, Holy Spirit, move. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.